this is really it's the first full week of July 2021 and this is this week in common sense starring Paul Jacob you you Paul Jacob and I'm here tagging along as uh, Timothy Vericolo and my dog is walking out of the room what is he doing <laughs> no no my dog is at my feet now he decided that my dog needed to be nearer me I guess I wanted to be known that I had tremendous sympathy for people when I was a kid. My brother had a lot of allergies. My best friend had all kinds of allergies. And I believe that I was properly sympathetic, if not empathetic, because I didn't have allergies. So I don't know why this curse in my, uh, in my uh, well, young adulthood, let's call it, <laughs> yeah, let's call it that. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember when? Uh, uh, oh, Henry Hyde was uh, found that he had had an affair, and of course, I think he was in his sixties, and so the affair was twenty years prior. But they they described it as a youthful indiscretion. <laughs> he, he was forty something years old. So of course I was thirty something at that time. So I thought that was uh, you know maybe not as funny as I think it is now. Well, um, we we talked on Monday about the other other, the concept of the other, and this week we had I think we dealt with the media and the and the establishment really kind of throughout and had a lot of comments and i think back to the days you know we were talking about henry hyde was a big opponent of term limits i think back to the glory days of my youth and the term limits movement which was has not been successful yet in getting congressional term limits but is responsible for 14 states that have state legislative term limits and eight of the 10 largest metro areas in the country, those cities have term limits, and of course, thousands of others, and, and 36 governors, and statewide officials, and so on and so on. Um, so a lot of success there. But one of the things that term limits did was to build a movement outside of Washington that was largely bipartisan more Republican than Democrat. And of course, if you read the media, much more Republican than Democrat because the media was in Washington. And this movement that happened all over the country was viewed by the press from their perch in Washington, talking to congressmen and other experts and lobbyists and so on and so on. And so they never really saw the movement out there. They never bothered to look, is, is my view. And I, I don't say that about every reporter, because some did. Uh, and it wouldn't be fair to say it of all of them, because some did look and, and do some things. But for the most part, um, they ignored it until they had to cover it. And they covered it from a complete, completely uh, Washington-centric attitude. But there was a movement that was bipartisan, nonpartisan, transpartisan, uh, people who they may have voted one way or the other, but really were the precursors of today's conservatives who might have been called in the 60s or 70s Republicans, but don't want to be called Republicans today. They want to be called conservatives in the same way that progressives 
you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago wouldn't have had any problem being called Democrats, but they don't, they're not so sure they want to be called Democrats today. Um, and, and so there's that, that bipartisan, you know, uh, and nonpartisan people's movement. And the, the Tea Party very quickly became much more of a Republican uh, effort, uh, although I don't think it really started that way. And it would be interesting to see if that can be built because we desperately need it. I mean, I've, I've been talking about uh, voting rights and these different things. Some of these reforms are reforms and some of these reforms are a dagger stuck in the heart of voters. And the national media is going to say anything the Republicans do is suppression and that anything the Democrats do is voting rights and wonderful. And neither of those is quite true. Now, Republicans are going to do some things that strike me as suppression, whether that's what they intend or not. That's another question. Um, but they're also doing some things that are smart and good election integrity. Those are not bad. They don't make it impossible to vote. I mean, as we talked about weeks ago, uh, you know, we've always been told voter ID was suppression. Uh, until and and especially it's racist until a poll the other day found that 84% of people of color supported voter ID. So it's you know there, there's all of that. But but I would I want to see uh, and I've been saying about this issue of voting rights and so on. And you can do it on almost every issue, but especially that sort of issue. Republicans and Democrats have personal interests. This is they're not they're not even voting on something that might affect their stock. They're voting on something that affects their crazy narcissistic head. I mean, that's whether they're going to be in office or not. This is to them desperately important. And we cannot just not pay attention and we cannot believe everything we hear from our favorite media source. You mean people like Fareed Zakaria? Yeah, yes. Well, he's not my. I, I, uh, I will take a victory lap for for having the self discipline and maybe uh, masochistic tendencies to watch uh, CNN and to listen to what folks are saying, who I might not agree with. And usually, I do not agree with Fareed Zakaria, but he had a, a two guests on who I find much more objectionable, and it's John Meacham who's a historian and an author, but he's a, he's a Beltway, Washington, D.C. scribe. He's the wise, thoughtful person who's going to say, whatever the establishment Washington wants is brilliant, and whatever those unwashed masses might want is crap. Um, and he's going to say it much better than I did, but a lot less honestly. And, uh, and they also had Doris Kearns Goodwin, who is the same sort of character. In other words, again, no diversity whatsoever. Two people cut out of the same exact cloth in the same town doing the same, you know, stuff. But she also happens to be someone who's plagiarized, you know, some of her books and oh shucks, sorry if she were someone who was saying anything against the establishment, she she wouldn't be able to get on TV again because she's a plagiarist. But now you know, you have to have a certain point of view to be able to continue to be on TV or to be president of the United States. Because, of course, 
President Biden's had a, a repeated problem with plagiarism throughout his career. And, and some people think, oh, he had that one problem. No, it wasn't one problem. He's had that problem repeatedly. Um, but but here's, here's the problem I had with what they had to say. I'm minding my own business. It's Independence Day. And I make the mistake of turning on the television and watching CNN. And John Meacham basically says, the problem we have is that there's this large swath of the Republican Party that is, as, as I paraphrased him, um, that is basically incoherent, destructive, and evil. Um, you know, he, he basically said, you know, they're no longer part of a, of a coherent, constructive, and good intention conversation about the future of the country. But what he's basically saying is they're canceled. There's nothing they're saying that we should listen to. They are not legitimate actors. We should ignore them. We should crush them at the polls. We should. And after we crush them, if they cry, close your ears. They are not part of a coherent and constructive and good intention conversation. Only folks on, on the other side are or some tiny number of Republicans who the liberal media is always, I mean, half their conversations are about how can the Republicans actually support fellow Republicans? Why haven't they abandoned the party and fallen on their knees crying, begging for our forgiveness? What's wrong with them? I don't know, Bill. Uh, it must be that they're just Republicans who don't understand how stupid everything they say is. I mean, these are the types of conversations that you hear on cable TV, on CNN and MSNBC. And, and so he says this and basically just smears Republicans as all kind of insurrectionists. That's their new kind of thing. All Republicans, everybody in the country who doesn't support their political views is an insurrectionist. And then he says, what we need is a democratic, uh, uh, he says, a democracy fundamentally depends on our capacity to see each other not as adversaries or heathen, but as neighbors. And of course, his intent is the other people who are heathens and rotten adversaries and terrible, rotten, horrible people, they don't understand that you have to see each other as good people. You can't have that attitude after he full-throatedly expresses that attitude, he turns around and suggests that they don't have, they have a bad attitude and so on. I mean, it's just, it, it's bunk. But it's important, I think, here to call it out because of course these two folks were introduced in this segment. Uh, and you would be proud at least in yesteryear, you would have been proud to say we have two Pulitzer Prize winners on the show today. I mean, if we on this podcast, if you and I had won Pulitzer Prize, Prizes, I mean, I don't know what bad thing we would have had to do to, to win them. But, but uh, you know, years ago, that would have been like a really good thing, just like a Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, as a kid, we might have thought, hey, someday I hope I do something to win a Nobel Peace Prize. 
Today, you'd kind of go, no, don't do that. What a dirty trick to give me the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, it's, it's, so anyway, uh, it, it, these are the voices of the establishment and they are so bankrupt. They are so, if they were emperors, they would not be dressed. And then of course, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin comes on and she basically says that the answer to seeing folks as the other is national service. So making every young person, we've already got them, and we're going to talk more about, about national service. So I won't go into a long thing here because one of the other scripts this week on, on Thursday, dizzy, dizzying utopian vortex. Easy, well, not so easy to say. That was, uh, uh, that's Thursday and we'll get to that. In fact, maybe, maybe we just do that next. Um, and so we'll, we'll roll right, right into it. We are moving today. Anyway, she acts as if all we got to do is get, she says, you get people from the city to the country, country to the city, you begin to create a new generation that has shared values. So she looks at it as if if we could just put young people together make work all over and 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 i think she's talking more of make work we'll get we'll get to people who think this isn't make work this is you know serendipity but but she she believes this is going to create a situation in which people will all come together and realize we have certain shared values, which are the values of John Meacham and Doris Kearns Goodwin. So on the one hand, I'm sure they get up in the morning and they don't look in the mirror and go, man, I'm a horrible person and I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep being rotten. I'm sure that, and I'm sure that they're nice to people at some point during the day or whatever, I'm, I'm not, I don't know them, but they have a view that they are the nation's brains and that our our sons and daughters are, are chattel and just can be pushed whatever. Oh, and that'll help them. If we drag Joe and Sally out of their houses and force them to come down here and work, and, and they won't say it that way. Let's talk about Thursday's script and how they will say it. Um, well, before we do that, before we jump there, I wanted to, uh, to mention uh, some of the comments. We had a number of comments on this piece about the other other. Um, and and <laughs> John Brennan, who uh, often comments, uh, was very, strong and, and agreeing and and uh, uh, Drick made the point uh, that nothing like a draft and an ongoing war to unite the country. So in, in some ways, a lot of times these folks who are talking about national service, they have this view of World War II and what it must have meant for a kid who's 17 from the cornfield somewhere to get bus to the city and go meet a bunch of people from New York and California and Florida and Michigan and and then go overseas and see all this different stuff 
and and see a couple, you know, maybe he stormed the beach and he saw people blown apart. And there's no doubt this was a galvanizing, uh, in many cases, inspiring, even in a nasty, horrible, terrible way. But that's kind of the point that, yes, society is going to come together. More. You know, if we're all dying tomorrow, we're going to be a lot nicer to each other, I think most of us <laughs> but, but i don't want us all to be dying tomorrow I mean, in other words it's like it's like let's recreate all the good out of world war ii but not have a world war well it you know the world doesn't work that way i mean we we have trouble figuring out how to just distribute checks correctly to people. We, you know, the, the government is not at a level in which it's able to make everyone self-actualized. And, you know, I mean, it, this is not, it, this is like Congress's therapist. And then of course, half the time, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of Congress as, uh, as or, or it's young people as therapists. In other words, the secret seems to be young people. If we can just put them in with elderly people, the elderly people would just be as happy as, as you know, they can be. Everything will work out great. If we can put them in schools, if we can, you know, and, and well, let me, let me go to uh, 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 Thursday's piece. And, and just, this is a, there was a New York Times op-ed and there's these, you know, four times a year or something, somebody comes out from, from the academy, from, uh, you know, the intelligentsia, from political, you know, wastelands to argue uh, that we need national service. They never suggest any kid is going to have something else to do. You know, if you're, if you're 18 and you're the greatest basketball player ever, you're going to have to give up a year between 18 and 25. That's what that's what's uh, Dr. Holloway, the president of Rutgers University. That's what he was suggesting. So uh, you got to give up like 10 million dollars. That's really fair. Or do you get like they did in South Korea, where the, the boy band that's making billions of dollars, they don't make a wait a few years before they give their service. Um, but it's they never talk about anyone who might say, you know, I'm not doing that. And I suggest sometimes to people, are they going to put people in jail for this? Well, no one's suggesting that. Well, yes, they are. Eric Gardner is dead. And who is Eric Gardner? Eric Gardner is the guy in New York who was selling cigarettes, single cigarettes, because the taxation is so bad and the cigarettes are so expensive that you can sell single cig cigarettes on the street. It's against the law though. They didn't like people doing that. And they decided they were gonna prosecute somebody for it. So when you put laws on the books and then are shocked that some the police is arresting somebody, someone's being sued, someone's, that's what laws are all about. And if you're shocked by that, you need to like take a break from the public policy arena and and refocus maybe you know maybe some some soft music something to to kind of get your head straight um but 
But not only do they never point out that there could be any problems whatsoever with forcing every single young person. And of course, Holloway also says no exceptions. So no exceptions for the guy who's the greatest basketball player ever. No exceptions for the person who's in a coma. No exceptions for the person who is, you know, has severe health problems. And, and, and of course, you could say, well, we're just going to figure out some way. Well, are you going to hire six people for every young person to figure out how we get them to save the world? Because this is what they're talking about them doing. This is the kind of thing they're going to do. See, he says it's easy to imagine. These are his words. Now, these are mine, that, that this basically one year of government control and use of right now, it's about four million 18 year olds. People turn 18 every year. Uh, so these folks are of this is, quote, a vehicle to provide necessary support to underserved urban and rural communities, help eliminate food deserts, contribute to rebuilding the nation's infrastructure. I guess they'll be wearing a hard hat enrich our arts and culture, and bolster our community health clinics, classrooms, and preschools. So now we're, we're gonna be shoving uh, young people into preschools. Uh, I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure the people sending their kids to preschools are gonna want that. But he goes on to say that national service would, and this is all Dr. Holloway, put young people in the wilderness repairing the ravages of environmental destruction. He doesn't say how or how well you could repair those ravages. Is like, anyway, quote, dispatch young Americans to distant lands. This is not sounding good. Where they would understand the challenges of poor countries. We're going to be flying people to you know, Zaire and different places saying, hey, let us know when you get the challenges of poor countries down, come on back. This sounds like an expensive program. Force all, and he uses, this is his words, force all of our young people to know one another better. <laughs> I wonder how many people don't see it as absurd. Now, we see it as absurd on the face of it. But what is the population of people who don't see it as absurd? Well, most people are never going to see it because they're not in these intellectual circles. And so they're not going to read this in the New York Times because they don't read the New York Times. And they're not really interested in this like little sliver of public policy. But I think your point is really important because there is that subset and it's small of people who do read things like this and think about it and they're at universities and they're in washington and they're in government agencies and they're in nonprofits um especially political nonprofits and they eat this stuff up because it's all about them and their expertise leading to a changed and healed world. And all they need is to be able to drag your 18-year-old or 22-year-old out of the house whenever they feel like it and force them to do all this wonderful stuff. And, and so it, it's a great point. 
this uh, there was a poll taken that showed 49% of Americans favoring some form of national service, military or civilian. And of course, the, the thought is, well, the civilian, nobody really objects to that. They only objected to being you know, enslaved for a year because it was to go kill people or get blown up. And the reality is you can see there's the volunteer military has done pretty well. So people are willing to take risks. Now, it it is true that I think you're going to have a whole segment of people who will support it if it's not strictly military, who wouldn't otherwise. But you're also going to have a segment of people like myself who are not going to support any sort of slave labor program run by the government. That's not how things are supposed to go. You don't have a right to do that. In fact, if you look at the 13th Amendment, which some people will say, well, that was just about slavery. Well, if it was just about slavery, why did they mention involuntary servitude along with slavery? It's not allowed. And it's totally unnecessary. Here's the worst part. They can't expand these programs very much. And I'm, I, I'm against them expanding these programs because I think they're largely wasteful. But from a political standpoint, I wouldn't spend two seconds fighting the expansion of these programs because it's not where government's gonna screw everything up. And there's a real limit to how much they can expand it. Because of course, one of the things you're talking about, I mean, they're thinking about, oh, well, this is a nice young person, he's gonna do this. There's a lot of young people out there. Some of them have certain problems. Some of them have certain gifts. Do we think some huge bureaucracy in Washington is gonna be able to put them all in the right slots? Is that maybe one or two people working with that computer program and the algorithm to get our kids just to the right spot? I mean, this whole thing is insane. And it'd be one thing to say, okay, this is insane. We know we don't wanna do national service, but I think we have to force national service. But I think we have to say to ourselves, why does such an insane idea continually come up and never really be pushed back hard enough. And as it's being explained, never, never explained with any sophistication whatsoever, with any appreciation whatsoever of, of what this would really take to do. This, this is silliness. And I, as I get older, <laughs> I'm hoping it's just <laughs> that, my, that my attitude about how screwed up we are is just crotchety old age. But I'm afraid it's not. But as I get older, I get more and more concerned about things I see that don't make any sense like this. When I know that that this can be battered about all, all through, bantered about all throughout, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and all kinds of people who went to, you know, Harvard and Yale and then got their law degree from Georgetown and decided they wanted to get a doctorate in foreign policy studies or something after that are talking about this stuff like numbskulls, like two-year-olds. That's a problem. That means that the people running a lot of what the national government does are clueless about basic things. And I'm still pretty happy that 
The American people are not clueless about it. This poll that showed 49% of the people supporting it, my sense is there was no emphasis that some people were going to oppose it and you might be putting some young people in jail um, or punishing, creating some ridiculous thing like with draft registration now where nobody is put in jail for not registering for the draft. But if someone is in a poor community and therefore doesn't know what's going on and isn't told at some point, he doesn't go to college and they say, oh, you didn't register for the draft. And he gets to be 26 without registering for the draft. He can never get a job with the federal government. All kinds of benefits he would otherwise get, he will never get. And. You know, I when I when I'm worried late at night, that's usually not what I'm worried about, that someone's not going to get some benefit from the federal government. But it's again, why would you why would you do that sort of thing about someone not signing a piece of paper? And, and you know, I mean, it's it's not tied to anything bigger and they're ruining all kinds of people's lives. But these people don't have any lobby. They're not wealthy people. And they don't have any voice. So it's it's uh, th this issue of national service, um, you know, just anybody, you know, listening, you know, anytime you see it, it's bad news just because that we even have to discuss such silliness is a bad sign about the, the health of our political system and our uh, and our uh, politics generally. What I find so weird about it is the utopian element. And by that I mean, these are people who are complaining, and Meacham directly complained, about how the United States is being split apart by one group who doesn't understand the other, can't empathize, just treats them as the enemy. And then he offers, and then this other woman on, on his side offers a solution mandatory national service. Now, what's weird about this is that the reason they think so highly of national service is that how unifying the draft was in World War II. World War II successfully defeated two empires. Now, why was that as unifying? And it was culturally unifying to some degree because blacks and whites were somewhat integrated as a result because they had the same experiences and there was some sympathy across racial lines and uh, certainly across cultural lines when, you know, the German uh, Americans had to deal with the Italian Americans who had to deal with the Spanish Americans who had to deal with the Finnish Americans. The guy from the South had to deal with a guy from New York and vice versa. And, and... Exactly. And that's all, that's all understandable, but it worked for one reason. And, and this is the thing they keep on forgetting. It worked because we had an enemy. It worked because there was an other, which we were not sympathizing with one little bit. We had two enemies. We had Japan and we had Germany. And we were against them. We didn't have empathy towards them. We called them bad names and we killed them. This is a unifying experience, killing other people that you don't <laughs> like. And this, is, this has been known in sociology for a long time. Herbert Spencer and William Graham Sumner, who were two great libertarians of the 19th century and early 20th century, they made a big deal about this because this is the, a basic element of human nature. And if you want to unify a people, then you need a good enemy. 
And they're dealing with an enemy within their ranks, within our country. And they think that putting the enemy and the and the uh, and and then they're, they're the good people together will make them all come to love each other in a lovey-dovey way. This is stupid. Yes. Yes. And uh, Daniel McKiernan, uh, in uh, the comments for the uh, dizzying, uh, what did we call it? Dizzying Utopian Vortex. Boy, I can't say it either. Dizzying Utopian Vortex. It reads silently so much better <laughs> than the spoken <laughs> word. Yeah. Uh, but he notices something about what's behind this that 12 years of state-controlled education are not producing more committed leftists. And so they want a further immersive period of indoctrination. And I don't think that will work, by the way. I don't think that putting people together from all walks of life to do make-work projects or projects for which they're not suited, sending a person out to do environmental damage control with a bunch of people from other cultures is not the best use of their talents. This is just absurd. Yes. And it's not going to make them love each other or well, think of them more as neighbors. Except they they may despise one thing and come to see one thing as the enemy. And maybe we should support this for that reason. They'll see the state as the enemy. The people who are putting them in this position. So maybe you and I should be supporting mandatory <laughs> service because it will create more anti-status than anything else imaginable. It really is the sort of, let's recreate World War II because it was good. And World War II was not good. I mean, it was good that, that the Allies won and that the Nazis and, and the Japanese Nazis didn't win. But it was not good overall. Millions, what was that, over 100 million people died overall from different... It, this is a horrible, horrible thing. It's kind of like... If if you thought you were really sick and going to die, it would bring your family, you know, if they like it at all, it would bring your family closer together. But you wouldn't want to be sick and almost die. And if you faked it, you know, it wouldn't bring your family closer together. And you can't fake World War II. And, and the difference is the draft in World War II was not unpopular. And I say that, and let me historically point out, they started the draft before World War II, before Pearl Harbor. And it was pretty controversial. I believe it won by a vote or two votes. In the House, there was a fist fight, um, which was in many places in the world there is all the time in the legislature, but not so often in the Congress. And it was tremendously controversial because it was a peacetime draft. And once Pearl Harbor was attacked, you know, I have relatives who they were 16, they were 17, they were lying to get in. This is the draft was simply a way to do it that they didn't overwhelm the folks saying, yes, you can come into the army and fight. So so it's a whole different sort of attitude. And and I also think it's funny what they're looking, you know. If you're looking for soldiers, young people are your best bet. I mean, I'd like to think that if it push came to shove and I had to be in a foxhole, that I wouldn't be completely worthless to wherever was going. Let's let's not tell them where we're marching to next. But young people can jump high and, you know, and climb things and, and they can put up with stuff that the rest of us are going, I'm not putting up with that. 
Um, and and so it it makes sense that if you're looking for soldiers, you're looking for young people. But if you're looking for people to take care of elderly people, I like Pat had some good things to say here. Um, he um, Pat points out that you know Holloway talked about as a vehicle to provide necessary support to undeserved, uh, underserved urban and rural communities, but pointed out, look, if he's talking about doctors, hospitals, schools, this isn't something that someone who just graduated from high school is is going to get plugged in and be some huge help. Eliminate food deserts. I've seen this brought up numerous times. It's like the, I guess the new fad is food deserts, and, and food deserts are a problem. But I liked what Pat had to say because she, she, I think it's a she, um, said how without first eliminating crime in these areas, because I, you do hear about food deserts. The problem with food deserts is that businesses, <clears throat> you know, those entities that like to make money and that sometimes will do almost anything, things that you don't think are morally the right thing to do, because that's how the bottom line goes and they want to make that money. They have no problem moving into a poor neighborhood where there's no crime and people are wanting to buy their product and they can make a profit. Where there is a, a lot of crime, they might not want to move in or the prices might be a lot higher because they have to pay to cover the crime. And uh, it's almost never pointed out when we're talking about food deserts. But, you know, again, it's just this insanity that we want to talk about things, but not say certain things about them. Um, but the other thing that I thought was funny, contribute to rebuilding the nation's infrastructure. And she says, contribute what? Forced labor? And yes, that's what they're talking about. Now, does that make sense? We've got this infrastructure bill, which you and I are not thrilled with. Um, and a lot of people aren't thrilled with. But people who want to work construction, people who work uh, paving roads, um, well, not this infrastructure bill, because only about, what is it, 10% is devoted to infrastructure. But in other words, these are jobs that there are people with families out there who they like this job, because these are pretty good paying jobs. But you could get cheaper roads built if you forced every young person to take that job. They wouldn't be as skilled but you could pay them a lot less because, of course, you could force them to do anything you want. So you can force them to, to work for minimum wage. And, you know, I mean, this is this is a discussion we unfortunately need to have because not only do we sometimes decide government can do things it can't do. But here we we dream up all kinds of stuff that and never even kick the tires. So anyway, the <laughs> the rest of the week wasn't much better for these United States in terms of uh, in in terms of our government. But but um, we also and and this is an interesting. I don't know how to even say it without kind of sounding like a conspiracy theorist. Um, but, you know, you, you have all kinds of jokes and memes about, you know, China and the and of course, China's run by the Chinese Communist Party, which isn't communist, really. They're Nazis. Um, that's kind of how they run. I think it's a much more apt description. That's why I call them China Nazis. 
it's just a much more apt description of what they're doing economically and governmentally than communism. Communism was when Mao starved everybody and beat and killed others, but mainly starved. This is, this is Nazism. It's state capitalism on steroids with a totalitarian police state. And apparently a lot of people like that in America, not so much in China. I'm pretty convinced the Chinese would like to get that off their back. But, but among the elite in America, there is this, and look, none of them are gonna come out and go, I love China, except maybe Bloomberg, who wanted to tell us that it's, it's not a dictatorship. And, uh, and, and kind of the whole idea that, that uh, Xi Jinping has, you know, he's got to please the people of China. I, I saw a, a video, it was actually a decent in parts, uh, Bloomberg did a video, it was on China and what's happening now and so on, and mistakes the U.S. is making and so on. And it was an interesting video, but they talked about China as if it was the United States without quite as much democratic activity, just not quite as much. There's, you know, there are 90 million Communist Party members in China. There are 1.4 billion people. And, and that's, it's probably 1.4 something. And those, those somethings are millions of people, millions more. It's, it's a big place. You've got this tiny fraction of less than 10% of the people who make the decisions. And of course, numerous companies are forced to put Communist Party members into their leadership, into their management, into their ownership structure. This is, and, and so again, this isn't, it isn't Stalin, it isn't Mao. They, they weren't as smart as Xi Jinping, frankly. They weren't as smart as the communist became as they stopped being communist in China and started to be totalitarian state capitalists. So, you know, I guess my hat's off for not being as stupid as Mao, but I don't, you know, that I'm still not going to salute him. And, and so anyway, there's, there's all this attitude that in the U S about, um, you know, that the, the, I think that so much of the anti-Trump was that he's not part of the intelligentsia. He's not part of the, you know, this elite that we have in the U.S. The left talks about the 1%, but the, the, the leftist Democrats in Congress are damn glad to be part of that 1% and do everything they can to protect that 1%. And we'll talk about that last today, about how the defund the police left is funding the police, but anyway. Right now you're talking about goodbye Google from July 6th, is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. And I was alluding to Friday's piece, which is, what is it, present for police. But uh, but the, this this Google thing, let's tell the story because it's it's important and, and I've kind of gone into the big picture of, of and my concern and, and that you constantly hear these memes that suggest the leadership of the U.S. and the leadership of China are, are somewhat colluding together. There's no question that both the government of the U.S. and the government of China is colluding with big tech, with Google, with Apple, with Facebook. Um, and so, you know, and, and of course, Facebook isn't in, in and Google isn't in, in uh, 
China in, in the same way, but, but, you know, they are still doing all kinds of things and, and, uh, China is a tremendous marketplace. So you can expect that to happen, but what, what goodbye Google talks about, uh, is the human rights efforts of people using YouTube and there's the Atazerk Kazakh human rights group. And what they're doing is putting video evidence up on YouTube to show that China is committing genocide in Xinjiang. And, and so as people are being hauled off, they're doing stuff on YouTube to identify them. YouTube is suppressing their videos saying that they're violating people's privacy rights um, and saying that they're harassing people and, and other things. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And there are links in the, in the piece. You can find out a lot more of it. But it's once again, I mean, we had YouTube as this pandemic was raging. Tell the CEO, tell us that any, any post, any film put on YouTube that was against what the WHO, the World Health Organization was saying, which was what China told the World Health Organization to say, anything that violated that would be censored. Now, whether they were able to censor every single thing, maybe not. They censored a lot, a lot. And, uh, and so the, the good news is this, uh, Odyssey, uh, is a new competitor to YouTube and they didn't have to just take it. They're now on a, on a new platform because so much of what they're doing, they're not reaching every mass audience. This isn't, you know, some silly, you know, YouTube video that everyone's going to laugh about, but they're documenting something that's hugely important and could not do it on YouTube. And and I have to say, uh, and again, this is uh, maybe it is kind of conspiracy theorist to even say it, but I'm going to say it because it's my reality. I can't tell you how many people have expressed to me that, boy, when they post something that they've had problems posting on Facebook, these are just individuals problems post, posting on Facebook if they say anything anti-China. That and and folks I know in Taiwan, I mean they've had all kinds of. I mean you can tell that certain things. I I, I listen to uh, China and uncensored on uh, YouTube. I listen to some others, but I'll, I'll, I'll probably won't be able to say what their names are exactly. Um, but uh, all of them talk about that they're they're having all kinds of trouble. Uh, they're being demonetized. They're and where is this coming from? Well, it's coming from China. And if you doubt at all the impact that China can have, I mean, think about how they jerked around the NBA. The NBA was quaking in their boots because there is they can make more money in China than they can make in the United States of America. There are more fans there. And so, you know, they want to do whatever the the. Nazi, the Chinese Nazis tell them to do. And it's sad, but it's also frightening because this is our world. This is the world our kids and grandkids and folks are going to 
live in if we don't do something about it. And and let me also um, we had a uh, piece this week. Uh, we we do every as as Tim and I have talked about. We have a a thought every day, Monday through Sunday. You know, seven days a week. Something that somebody has said that we think is important and about freedom. And we have a today, you know, what in history happened today that has something to do with freedom? Well, I think it was on the 29th of June. Um, uh, so it wasn't wasn't uh, this week. Uh, but but we had this comment by Richard Mueller. And this is before the House committee that's looking into the House Oversight and Reform Committee, uh, the select coronavirus crisis hearing that was held June 29th. That's not when we put it up. We put it up this week, but that's when, when he said it. And here's what he said. He said, some people say we will never know, not until China confesses or unless there's a whistleblower, but well, we have a whistleblower. It was the virus itself. It came here, it came out of China and it carried to us genetic information. Yes, it was a laboratory leak. But he also says, which is, this is, this is not, this isn't some politician. This is a scientist who's looked into this. He also points out that he has talked to all kinds of scientists to say, why don't you look into this? Why don't you write about this? Why don't you do a study on this? And he has been told, we cannot do that. If we do that, we lose money. We lose money from China. We lose money from other groups that are going to lose money from China. China is knows how to play politics. They're learning how to play politics with military, but they've known for a long time how to play politics with money. And, and they're playing. And so when you think about, well, why would people not tell us the truth here? Why would the who? You, you don't think that uh, Tedros, the head of the who, is, uh, has gotten some benefit from China at some point? I suspect he has. Um, so anyway, that's, that's part of this whole debate. And, I, and uh, I wanted to mention Tom Knapp, Thomas L. Knapp, uh, but we know him as Tom Knapp, a uh, friend of ours, uh, often you know, comments, usually when he disagrees, which is the way I would do it too. You know, you're not always going to go attaboy, but he has been critical of some of the coverage of China and some of my hyper concern. And I will say it's hyper because I think, I think it needs to be hyper, but he says, yes, Google is working for the Chinese government. It's also working for the U S government and vice versa. So Tom is with us on the fact that this idea that Google, and he might include Facebook, I won't put words into his mouth, but we would, that these high-tech companies are not wholly separate from the government in all kinds of ways. But he says, personally, I'm more worried about the latter than the former. He's more worried about the US government than the Chinese government. And I disagree. I'm more worried. I live in America and the American government can do a lot more to screw me up. 
but my attitude and my focus is worldwide. I don't I don't want to shrink to a we have some land over here that that we can't say anything because because every corporation will shut us down because they're all working for the Chinese. I've got huge concerns with the Chinese and the biggest difference between the Chinese government and the United States government is that the wonderful people of China have almost zero, zero, zero point zero zero say in what they're going to do. And that's frightening. It's more frightening than the United States of America, where we don't have nearly as much say. But don't try to tell me it's zero, zero point zero zero. We have real say and we can do something about this. We may not. We may sink and, you know, empires rise and empires fall. But but we can do something about it here. And that's, to me, the the biggest difference. Um, you know, it's it's uh, uh, Pat raises a question here, too, about using antitrust law. And libertarians are not big fans of antitrust. You know, it's kind of like, well, you're too big, so we get to, to break you up and so on. And we're just concerned about giving the government that kind of power. But I think there are all kinds of ways that are that that don't give government huge amounts of power to separate government from big tech. And uh, and I think that's the way to to approach it. One of the things we're dealing here with is is a corporation with lots of power, corporate power that's been subsidized and, and contracted with the U.S. government for a long time and has contractual uh, ties with the uh, Chinese government. Uh, I don't know how strong it is with Google, but certainly other companies have strong ties to China. Well, and Google does too. But the reason we call China a Chinazi, that is Nazi instead of communist, is that they use the forms of private enterprise. But the party controls the government, and the party controls production. And that's how Nazis worked. Is that Mises called it, Ludwig von Mises called it a form of socialism. Is that if government controls private property, the private property isn't really operative in the same way. So the government is actually channeling and misallocating resources. That's something Daniel talked about in his yes. comment. Is how it's necessarily, all these things necessarily are. Uh, uh, when the government starts controlling corporations is they're necessarily misallocating resources from their most valued uses for the uses that government wants and government wants to stay in power and to keep people supporting government. And uh, so I, this is a huge issue uh, with tech companies. How do you unravel a tech company that's very powerful and has uh, ties to the government from government? It's they're really like, the party that supports it, part of the government. I consider this, you know, it's not really deep state, it's kind of wide state. This is a wide state problem is the term that I use. Uh, and it's a problem all over the place. Uh, many of these military contractors, for instance, also are the providers of our vote counting machines. I mean, yeah, the extent to which corporations working for government serve our government and also influence public opinion by suppressing ideas and lying about ideas and information and disinforming. I think it's much bigger than Tom Knapp is saying. I think it's much more difficult for us 
than we often say because everything is intertwined. Yes, and and it's it's not us making this charge that they're doing this, that they're blocking search engines and they're banning posts and they're censoring thing things. They have admitted it themselves in in the case of the lab leak, in other cases. Um, I mean, you know, we could never forget that much of our media, including national public radio, which is government supported radio in the United States of America, which bugs me anyway, but that they actively did not cover the Hunter Biden laptop story. And we had deep state people saying it was Russian disinformation, which they had no evidence for, we know today, because it it was true. It wasn't Russian disinformation. But this is literally, what, two weeks before the election? And the media decides, we will not let you know this. We will not tell you. We will not Facebook those others. So it's it's not just the lab leak. It's all the time, baby. It's 24-7. And it's, it's, you think about if tyrants had taken over the United States of America in, you know, 1980, uh, you know, people would have had like mimeograph machines or something. They could have passed out flyers to try to alert other people. Today, every mechanism we would use, they could control from somewhere else just about. I mean, it, it's, it is, it's just absolutely frightening. And, and maybe we should segue because, I, you know, we talk about this a lot. We'll be talking about it more because if we don't have the ability to freely speak, we're up a creek. And but but here is here is how bad, how how kind of just free to say whatever the heck they want. Our media people are and our education, the people educating our kids, the biggest teachers unions, the you know all kinds of. High hotshot professors and others on Wednesday gaslight theory. We talked about critical race theory, but and and we've talked about kind of racism, the racist anti-racism and so on before and critical race theory before obviously, but here it's kind of jumped out into the into the you know, the uh, political dialogue and, but it has been treated as some crazy thing that uh, conservatives, Fox News, you know, is making it up. Uh, I'm gonna forget his name, the guy who's uh, gotten so much, uh, Christopher Ruddy, is that the guy's name? Who, uh, I think he's with the Manhattan Institute. I can't think of, uh, we don't mention him in this piece, uh, Gaslight Theory. Uh, but he's been one of the main people pushing on critical race theory and so on. But it's it, all over the, well, we started off our piece. Parents are fighting with school, school boards in cities and towns across the country. MSNBC's Joy Reid informed her audience over curricula that they believe teaches white kids that they are racist. Reid asserted that, quote, none of this is actually happening. And so she has Kimberly Crenshaw, 
who's a law professor at Columbia and, and also at UCLA. Uh, double dipping. Good, good work. Nice work if you can get it. Uh, <clears throat> obviously, I mean, and I watched the segment, bright lady. She's also the executive director of the African-American Policy Forum. But her big claim to fame is that she actually invented, and I've, I've seen this not just on, on Joy Reid, but elsewhere, invented, <laughs> because I don't necessarily trust Joy Reid. You know, Joy Reid had the thing where she had all the posts that she had made anti-gay comments. And then when she was caught on it, she said, oh, I must have been hacked and we're going to ask the FBI to look at it. And then it all kind of got hushed up as if somehow we can't hold, you know, Joy Reid. She's black. She's a woman. We can't hold her accountable for actually telling the truth. So anyway, so I don't I don't much trust uh, Joy Reid. But. Uh, anyway, so she has her own. She says she invented the term critical race theory, which she has. And Crenshaw says that this whole thing about CRT is, quote, a boogeyman. And then she goes on to say, I think I would know if we were being taught in K-12. Reed goes, oh, no, it's a it's a GOP freakout over critical race theory. Highly manufactured. This is her words highly manufactured strategy created by seasoned political operatives looking for the perfect wedge issue. Well, now, you don't have to Google very much. Now, if, if you're reading the New York Times, the Washington Post, or most of the papers in the country that take their news from their national news from the Post or the New York or the AP or, or the New York Times, you're not going to see it in your paper. It's not going to be on any of this. It's not going to be on MSNBC except in this type of format. It's not going to be on the, the nightly news on NBC or CBS or, or World News Tonight on ABC or whatever it's called these days. You're only going to hear about it on Fox or in talk radio, or if you happen to get some publications that are conservative. But there's been a huge fight here in Loudoun County. We've talked about it before in Common Sense. And it's all over the country. And of course, the other thing that the left wants to do is oh, they just don't want to talk about history. They don't want to learn about slavery. This has absolutely nothing to do with history. You would think it had just a little bit, but nothing, absolutely nothing, because you can teach all of the history. In fact, <clears throat> in an op-ed that uh, Crenshaw had in the, in the uh, Washington Post, she even acknowledged that there's nothing in the law that says you can't teach the history. What they can't do is then say that's why this country is evil and that's why as a white person you're an oppressor and that's why that's what people are concerned about is trying to like torture kids as oppressed or oppressors, forgetting the fact that, you know, none of the kids going to school are responsible for any of this, not any. And so uh, anyway, so. There, there you have it. If you believe Joy Reid, if you believe almost every voice talking on the political left or the media, uh, but I repeat myself, there it is not happening. It's made up, and yet it's right there. And as I'm writing a piece about this, lo and behold, the National Education Association passes business item number 39. It's up on their website. Of course, by the time I write something, 
it's been pulled off their website. It's no longer on their website, but they come out and basically defend critical race theory in K-12. <clears throat> this is after we've been told it's not there. They are going to defend it. And this new business item 39, it is a hoot. I don't know if I can read all these words. Um, boy, they have some big words. But but I, <clears throat> I put it in the piece. They talk about defending CRT, and they also talk about, quote, an already created in-depth study that critiques empire, white supremacy, anti-blackness, anti-indigenuity. Indigeneity. Yeah, indigeneity. There, you got it right. Did you hear him? He got it right. Um, I, I, I probably could do it if I tried again, but I'm not. Uh, racism, patriarchy, cis heteropatriarchy, which seems cis, like cisgendered means it's like the kind of the biological way people think you're supposed to be or have thought or whatever. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on slippery. Well, are you, you're suggesting that maybe there's some redundancy in that list? Because <laughs> I can't imagine a patriarchy, which is a which is the rule by fathers to be made by gay fathers. That doesn't seem like it's an apt thing to be happening. Uh, well, they're talking so. about cis-hetero patriarchy. So it's like it's all intersectionalized right. together. That's what I'm saying. What's a non-hetero, cis-hetero patriarchy? Of course, they really mean andrarchy. They don't mean patriarchy. No one on the left knows what patriarchy is because they all think that patriarchy is just ruled by men. That's not what patriarchy is. Patriarchy is ruled by fathers. This is in a huge difference because it's, it, it deals with a whole bunch of really interesting issues in social theory. But they're just concerned with andrarchy, which is ruled by men, which they think that they suffer under now. Which well, they, they also have a critique on capitalism and on ableism. That must be people who think they're able. And, and does anyone like those people? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is that it's another way of attacking meritocracy, because to be able it means to have possessed merit on the market. That's really what we're talking about. Right. That, I, though I suppose they mean also physically ableist. Right, right. But, but what do, the reason I put that in there, and, and admittedly it's low-hanging fruit, but just, you can't read this and understand that these are the people that have tremendous influence, not only in our political system, but in the schools. So there's no, it's not even happening. And then we find out that, oh, it is happening. And the people who are the most powerful force in education know it's happening, have been preparing studies and they look at the world in such a way that you don't have any doubt that they have a whole agenda, a whole new language that needs to be spoken. We need to basically, we're going to year zero. Where's Pol Pot when we need him? I mean, this is insane stuff. And, and the truth is, if parents didn't get upset, Busy parents who are upset because you're telling their kid that, that he's an oppressor. You know, that's just, what are you doing? And, and but if had the parents hadn't revolted, this is nowhere. And of course, Reed tried to make it out. It was all a beltway thing. 
Um, but but I made a point to someone that, you know, the the media is a huge benefit to Democrats. It is the biggest super PAC of any super PAC, and it gives almost all of its support to Democrats. But there's a downside to the media. And weeks ago, we found out that even though we've been told a zillion times by the media that voter ID is a divisive, probably illegal voter suppression technique aimed against people of color, it turns out that 84% of people for uh, people of color are for it. It turns out, and, and all of a sudden, that when, when people start to talk about it a little bit more and, and find out what the reality is, all of a sudden, the Democrats have always been for it. We've always been for it, even though you can find us on tape calling it voter suppression and racist a zillion times. This is sort of the same thing. They really thought they could just lie about this. They could just gaslight us on critical race theory. They could just say it's not happening. And now, how do you think that as a political operative, how do you think, ah, we'll get through, no reason to worry, nobody will raise any, any problem, we can lie about this one. You think that way if you have a collaborative media that will hide stuff for you. And they tried. I mean, don't blame the media. Don't give the mainstream media a hard time. They work their tails off trying to stop and suppress this CRT stuff. They tried their best, but that it actually, I think, hurts Democrats sometimes that they have no clue what the people actually think because they never, you know, they have the media. They're saying, oh, they think this. Um, it is easy to get confused. Well, the Democrats aren't Democrats. I mean, just like we used to say, the Republicans aren't very Republican since they love empire so much. And that's becoming less true over time, thanks to Trump. But but the Democrats aren't really very democratic because they're at war with half of the population. Uh, they hate, I mean, they're the elites. They're, they're basically the, the people who run the government. And uh, I mean, this is me speaking. I'm not, I'm not saying that you should agree with me on everything. But, but uh, the Democrats also sound communist now because they're really aim for total control of the government and making sure that Republicans have no say. And then they pretend that the Republicans are authoritarian. This is a really, it, it, it all comes out of Yuri Bezmenov too. This whole thing about critical race theory. This is almost out of the playbook of the old Soviet Union of how to, de, how to well, the word they used back then and what Yuri Bezmenov, the uh, former propagandist PSYOP agent for the Soviet Union, what he said in America in 1983, I think it was, is that uh, it's subversion. The idea is to subvert the Constitution of the United States. And I think the Democrats are basically just fulfilling Yuri Bezmenov's plan. Uh, I don't have any, I, don't, I no longer, I mean, I, there are many Democratic people out there, people who vote for Democrat, who don't think this at all, because, of course, they believe what their elites tell them that we're all just good people trying to do good right. things. Right. But the Democratic leadership and the media are part of a PSYOP group to subvert the United States. That's, I, I, I don't have any, I, I, I'm, I'm entirely on that side. I, I, you, can, you can say nicer things, but I'm not, I, I don't believe it's anything different. The, the thing you said that I think is really important for people, and, and, and 
I don't have a very good opinion uh, of the Democrats, so I, I'm not going to argue with you. Um, uh, and but but you said something I think that's really important for people to to hear, and and so I want to kind of emphasize it that being for empire is not very Republican. And that, you know, you think back to Rome and the Republic, and then it becomes this big empire, and it's two different systems. And the empire is is not the system where people could understand the law and it was all simple. And, 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 uh, and so Republicanism throughout history has been, this is how we control government and we limit it in different ways. And we're, we're concerned about its power. And of course, for so many decades, Republicans have been for whatever the military, whatever we need to do overseas, we're, we're for. That has changed with Trump. And I remember in 2016 feeling like I really could almost flip a coin as to whether you could trust that Trump was really going to be because, you know, he's kind of got the macho and, the you know, you're worried that he's going to, oh, no, they attacked us. We're going to war, you know. And and so I was worried, I, you know, as I sometimes have joked, I had a friend who was a big Trump supporter and he would call me and go, you're still scared? <laughs> and I would usually say, yes, I am. Uh, but but on on foreign policy, on not intervening everywhere and trying to do everything um, and having some limits to that, I think Trump was a good, uh, a very good influence on the Republicans. And I think they've, you know, you had kind of the 1950s uh, Robert Taft style conservative, the Barry Goldwater, uh, a little bit of that school where, you know, we don't want to be an empire. We want to be a republic. Um, but that got lost. And I think I think Trump got it back for people. And I'll also say that I watched uh, most, if not all, of Biden's remarks the other day on getting out of Afghanistan. And um, if you saw him on TV, he had some great lines on TV. Uh, and and what he said, the substance I'm I'm very much in agreement with. Uh, he was feeble. He was very feeble in that. I mean, he just he has a lot of trouble and I don't know if it's stutter and, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to psychoanalyze or, or give him a medical diagnosis, but it's it's troubling. It's troubling uh, that that he just struggles a lot. And it's and it's not the best image to put forth, maybe for the, for the country or the world. But but it's also that you worry that that this is, this is a heck of a job. I mean, you, you hate to wish that job on anybody, but especially someone who may not be up to it on everything. Having said that, Joe Biden, who's been wrong about all kinds of things repeatedly, was right about Iraq in the sense that it's three countries and it's silly to try to create a, I mean, there's a Shia country, there's a, a Sunni country, um, and there's a, which are actually reverse, and, and there's the Kurds. And 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 so he's he has made sense from time to time in Afghanistan. He's going to get beat up because the Taliban is going to come back. It's not we weren't able to build a nation there. We're not good at nation building. You know what? Nobody is because that's not how nations get built. Yeah. You know, you don't have invaders come in and go, oh, we built we built you a wonderful society. We're leaving now. 
I mean, you got to do that yourself. And and so, but but I thought he was very strong in pointing out that we're leaving it to the Afghan people. The Afghan army government people have to step up. If they don't want the Taliban, they're going to have to fight them. And so uh, I thought it was I thought it was really good. I thought it was uh, interesting too that it is the most aggressively uh, the most aggressive and anti Biden the media and their questions have ever been on anything I've seen since he's been president or really even in the campaign. Um, uh, they weren't so deferential. It's it's interesting to me when you think about the media and separate them out from the Democratic Party. I know it's hard, but uh, when you separate the media out, Donald Trump's most popular move ever with the media was bombing that airfield in Syria after the chemical attack. They got blamed on the government, even though it's pretty obvious now, at least from what I've read, in the investigation afterward that it was not the government who did it and the toughest they've ever been with biden is when he's pulling out of afghanistan and so i don't know what you can say but that the media seems to be overwhelmingly pro-empire pro-war um and and that that's something that I don't think people think that way. I don't think they think, well, the media is I mean, we knew in the you know, in, in World War One or the Spanish American War and yellow journalism that the, the press plays stuff up. And, and and that's, I think, probably pretty normal, no matter where the press is ideologically, politically, is that they're going to hype everything. Um, I mean, look how disappointed I'm always joking when the, when there's a storm, your know, hurricane's about to hit and then it kind of goes off. It's like they're almost disappointed. There's there's nothing fun to cover. And and I don't say that because, oh, they're terrible people. That's the way we are as people. I mean, we get excited about stuff. And and sometimes when when it's not even good stuff, but it's it's something that we've gotten all hyped up about. <laughs> but um, the media, I've pointed out many times, the media is to the left of the Democratic Party. But when it comes to war and empire, they're not. In that case, they're way to the right of the Democratic Party. I think they just serve the CIA. <laughs> we only have one uh, leg to go in this game. Present for police from Friday, July 9th. Yes, and uh, this is is a, a two-part uh, moral here. This The story's pretty simple, uh, that basically... The same people who are talking defund the police are basically letting billions be spent on new police. But it's who the police are protecting that seems to be the uh, the, the biggest change uh, and that, that it's the Capitol Police. But there's there's two parts of this, you know, the Capitol Police uh, and and I don't see it as some gigantic failure. You don't know that people are going to try to push through and, and that there's there's going to be a riot necessarily, and even though there were some indications that there, there could be something like that. Uh, so, you know, they didn't do a stellar job. They, uh, but it may be that, hey, it's, it's tough. Uh, you, you would think you would want to shore that up. And so maybe that's why... In May, they spent 
they decided to spend an additional $2 billion on the Capitol Police. But that doesn't appear to be what they're doing. Instead, uh, even today, as they took down the uh, fencing, uh, I hear, around the Capitol, they, uh, they are spending at least some of that money opening up field offices for the Capitol Police in Florida and California and envisioning additional field offices elsewhere. And so in, instead of kind of doubling down and saying, okay, how do we protect the national capital? The United States Capitol Police has gone national. And uh, this is present for police. And the reason it's titled uh, present for police is that the way this happened was a 213 to 212 vote in the House of Representatives. This is basically Nancy Pelosi's uh, police force. And of course, now it's gonna have a, a, an additional element. Not only is it going national to somehow defend you know, Congress people all over the country, even though I don't think there's been any problems with Congress people all over the country, except you know there was a Rand Paul that his neighbor attacked him. Um, but they also say they have a, uh, how do they put it? A, they want to become an intelligence-based protective agency. And as we point out in this script, that's what, 18, 19 intelligence agencies now? I guess it's another one that, that can agree to things that turn out not to be true. Uh, but anyway, uh, so it passed, 213 to 212, and all the Republicans voted against it. <clears throat> but, uh, and, and the squad, which has been really probably the group most gun ho on defund the police. In fact, uh, 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 Rashida Tlaib said, no more policing, incarceration, and militarization. Um, and, and basically said, you know, just no more spending, no more, no, no new police anywhere. And then uh, uh, AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, said, uh, and this is last year about this time, defunding police means defunding police. It does not mean budget tricks or funny math. And at thisiscommonsense.org, script is present for police, I asked, what about funny voting? Because here's what happened. Three members of the squad voted with the Republicans. But three members of the squad who were there in the chamber prepared to vote, I would think that's kind of what you're supposed to do. That's the job. Voted present. Had any one of them, had AOC, had Tlaib voted no? that would have been blocked. Instead, these defund the police have expanded the police. The only difference is this is police for them, not for you or me. And although, you know, I'm, I'm glad that they're protected. I want people protected at my capital. So, you know, I don't have any problem with there being a, a competent police force there. But 
look what else they've done. They've just they've decided so you got all the usual hypocrisy and political BS, and that's kind of disgusting. But but policy wise, they've also done the kind of the age old Washington trick, which is we have failed at our mission. Our mission is really important. We really need to succeed. So let's spend a lot more money on it. And let's dramatically expand that mission to a new mission that we're unlikely to actually succeed at instead of let's fix whatever problems there were and so that we can actually succeed at the mission. And, uh, and what's the other upshot? Now we have potentially another kind of, uh, 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 you know, between the branches, we're going to have a, a legislative police force. I don't like it, but there's, there's one element of it that I would sort of like. And that is, I could imagine if folks said, hey, let's have a bigger Congress, a lot more people, smaller districts, better representation, and let's let them vote from home. And let's protect them in their districts. They could have a security person. Um, I mean, you could go crazy and give them two security people. but I would not have as much of a problem if it was something designed to reconnect our government to us. But it's not really. It's cries of insurrection. And, and look, you had lunatics, a small number, um, break into the Capitol. They wanted to stop a legitimate vote from happening. I'm not saying that they had to vote a certain way because you can legitimately vote either way, or, or it doesn't make any sense to have a vote. If you're voting on stuff that voting one way is totally illegitimate, don't hold the vote. Just decide that the legitimate way to do things is the right way. But, but they play it up as, you know, our country was, you know, a, a, a hair from being taken over and, you know, uh, some coup or something, which, of course, was not what was happening. Um, and then they don't do anything to actually protect that entity, our capital, and instead have a dramatically bigger mission um, that I think just invites trouble. Well, there we are, 2021. And trouble has been invited. What, what else can we ask for? Next week, we can talk about more trouble. Yeah. And maybe it's a time to uh, hand the baton for next week. Let's do it. Thank you.